Got some things for that liturgy. I know that in the past we've done a bunch of different things as we um, settle into a moment for someone to speak. And just reading those words, I'm going to talk a lot about that tonight. And I'm kind of um, glad that we've had a bit of time seeing these words of nationalism, words of cynicism, words of redemptive violence. Um, bear with me. The winter blues have struck. Winter is calm. I've got a bit of a stuffy nose. But we'll get through this and this is going to be fun. Um, so, two weeks ago. Um, I woke up at about 5.30. Um, I'm a light sleeper these days. I wish I was in bed till 11, but 5.30 it was. It was clear I wasn't falling asleep anytime soon. So, like any 26-year-old would, you pull the smartphone out, pull the Twitter app out to see what was going on in the, in the confines of the internet. And I realised there's some drama happening. And there's some drama happening out in Charlottesville. <clears throat> the day before... Um, I saw my feed walk through the Tiki Torch protest um, over the removal of a Confederate statue, a symbol of America's darker undertones of slavery and white conspir- um, supremacy. But I don't know, I had this naive thought this was a one-night event and, you know, that was something that passed and there'd be a response somewhere. Nope, that wasn't the case um, at 5.30 in the morning. With fast fun journalists and photographers and counter-protesters following every move on Twitter, I, before long I spent an hour and a half following a lot of things. Um, the Ku Klux Klan hats, the Confederate flags, the labels and the, the critiques applied to the protesters. The protesters by the local shops um, wanting equality and diversity the counter-protest, the cops, and of course that individual who decided to use their, we- use their vehicle as a weapon. Am I sure it wasn't the 1930s that I wake up in some nightmare and I wake up in some fantasy, or even the 1960s? The images that were there, I watched the that video, was pretty haunting, and didn't show to me a peaceful America. The content and the comments I saw that morning spoke not of unity, but of division. Where violence and oppression could be justified and perceivably necessary. Didn't help that the president first critiqued the violence on both sides without criticising the bigotry and hatred from a former era. Didn't help that corporate CEOs departed from the council as a result of the racism. Yet Christian leaders tied to the president refused to depart. So, how do we practice reconciliation in the midst of such division between people, between followers of Jesus? Although Charlottesville was a tragic event well away from us, we aren't immune from the oppression and injustice that shines around our community and our nation. We may not see brute force in the way of a vehicle, but we do see subtle undercurrents. Spending time with the topic, I firmly believe reconciliation is as important as ever, and thankfully the Anabaptists have something to say on the matter. Reconciliation wasn't their only mantra, though. We have dedicated many a gathering and many a conversation to their core convictions. Seeing Jesus as the centre of our faith, or their faith, and community as a centre of their lives. We were reminded our last formal gathering like this from Uncle Phil, and I will call him Uncle Phil for as long as I can, 
um, of how the tangible practices of foot washing and communion remind us of God's forgiveness and commitment to us, which we echo and extend to our community and to our world. And so from these two central convictions, we get to the third. Reconciliation being the centre of their work. Only, though, that being said, only through spending time seeing Jesus and seeing how community functions can they pull this complete picture of what reconciliation looks like. So tonight I'm nervously excited to begin our time and in this little mini-series we have on peacemaking through pacifism, defined, I believe, by the Oxford Dictionary as the belief that war and violence are unjustifiable and that all disputes should be settled by peaceful means. Nervously excited because as I prepared for this talk, I wonder what Chris would have to say on this. I wondered what um, Chris would have to say and maybe there'll be a time when that may take place in the future. I believe the Anabaptist reconciliation through pacifism will raise some questions for us um, of how of each of us individually as well as us communally to consider our response to the oppression that sits around us whether physical, structural or even subtle they may be as tangible as Charlottesville or just an undertone restoration is one of our core commitments at Mosaic so are, are our words and are our actions adding division and violence to the outsider? Or are they removing that tension, removing the barriers for people to engage in God's love and His way of peacemaking? Let me begin. So following the German Peasant War, where peasants petitioned their nobles for rights and freedom, it ultimately led to their dispersal and death. The Anabaptists historically were formed in about 1525. It's hard to really gauge with this movement, but that's the kind of approximate date. For them, though, the way of shalom was the mission. It meant more than just violence. It meant the holistic wholeness of harmony, health, integration, and balance. Peace building is the heart of the gospel, led by the Prince of Peace himself in the as I reflected, I was reminded by what Paul wrote in Philippians 2, reminding us that Jesus had made himself nothing, in spite of his equality with God, to obediently humble himself into servanthood and death, to bring a hand of peace, not a sword or a fist, in violence. I'm also reminded of the Gospel of John. Jesus reminds us that peace he leaves with us my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. As Jesus was the Prince of Peace, his disciples aspired to bring others into this way of peace. Travelling to the end of the earth. Serving earnestly. Dying for the cause all so others could join in and participate. The disciples walked the peacemaking road in the 1st century, and the Anabaptists sought to follow in the 16th. At a time when their Christian compatriots muddled peacemaking with the way of the empire, where the ritual of baptism became a ceremony of national allegiance rather than an act of discipleship, where the pursuit of peace provided the platform for war and violence, Dominance by any means necessary. 
It would be helpful here if I provide a bit of historical context, because when the disciples spread the good news of Jesus in that first generation as such, there was no incentive to side with war and hierarchy. They were the outsides of the empire. The empire didn't have much to say on the matter. But the empire took attention once the church grew numerically. And tensions between war and peace began. Chris alluded to in the first introductory talk to our series, talked about Constantine and the effect Constantine had on Christendom. And that as Constantine converted to Christianity, we have about a 200 year stretch where the predominant Christian view was a point was initially that it was not okay for war. But after that 200 years, war became defendable. And violence was justified. Where Christians were persecuted at the start for enlisting in general, by that 200-year stretch, only Christians could participate in war. As historian Stuart Murray noted, for many centuries after this change, churches endorsed lethal violence, blessed the weapons of war, prayed for military success, celebrated victories, in acts of worship, and deployed missionaries under the protection of conquering armies. With church and empire linked, the myth of redemptive violence was born, where war and violence could, were justified in, to make peace, to redeem a hostile situation in the churches and also the empire's favour. Augustine had a just war doctrine that provided this criteria that justified this particular position, this myth as such, where good, in, good intention, reasonable expectation of success, appropriate means, legitimate authority, and the option being the last one, being sufficient to proceed in violence. Now, it's debatable from that point to now that any war met that criteria, but it kind of depends what theologian you talk to and what bias they have to war. Nope, I'll give that. Anywho, so punching back in response to violence may sound good for whoever's in the dominant party. That, and if they win the war, it's even further this dominance. But what happens to those who are oppressed, to the victims of this violence, many of which fight back? And then there's a fight back and a reaction. And this, this to and throw of of reaction, of action and reaction of violence, you end up in this kind of ping-pong situation. I love gifts. This is great. <laughs> so ping-pong over centuries and centuries. So, yeah, sure, one side may win for a certain point in time, but it's only a matter of time until whoever is oppressed gains the strength to recover and fight back. And if a particular group of people or a particular denomination is destroyed, years later, another resistance would emerge. The Anabaptists couldn't see how this ping-pong of violence could actually redeem a situation into peace. They held close to Jesus' teaching, and they affirmed John 10 verse 10, where the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I, Jesus, have come that they may have life and have it to the full. When Peter cut off a soldier's ear, to defend the arrested Jesus, which is this great example of redemptive violence, if that were the case. Jesus scolds Peter for this courageous act, instead healing the soldier's ear of the one that was to arrest him and take him to Pilate, and, this, and the story goes from there. So, 
rather than seeing violence as redemptive, the Anabaptists took a posture of non-violence. But they didn't see it, though, as a mere tolerance to oppression. Um, and they looked to Matthew 5 in the Sermon of the Mount of all places for a non-violent response from Jesus. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. In the temptation to take revenge, Jesus on face value, if you take that passage at face value, causes disciples, it seems like, to receive further oppression. But is Jesus' way of peacemaking an intentional subordination, an intentional capitulation, an intentional slavery? Not by any means. What Jesus does here is provide tangible examples within their world, within the prevailing narrative of the Roman Empire, to turn the tables on the empire's authority. So that first example talks about slapping. Historically, a slap using the using or towards the right cheek would require the slap using the back of your right hand. It wouldn't be physical assault. You wouldn't be you would likely not be killed by a slap in that nature. But it would constitute an act of insult, an act of subordination. Now, a response could be to take revenge, to hit that other person back, and keep the violence in this ping-pong circulation. But a creative response is to voluntarily offer the other cheek. This voluntary gesture puts the Roman soldier in a rather difficult position, because on the one hand, he either strikes again, and because it was voluntary, the soldier considers the oppressed an equal. Or he chooses not to retaliate, which means subordinating to a Jewish request. The second example talks about clothing. Historically, the Jews owned little. Some may have only owned an outer cloak that would have constituted their bedding for the night as well. Biblical law did not permit the seizure of this coat. So when the Roman ruler stripped someone's shirt to degrade them, to, to show they were inferior, a creative response is to hand over that last article of clothing, that very coat. It's not tolerating oppression, mind you, but it's forcing the ruler into a similar quandary, to either obey the Jews' instruction or violate the law. The third example, the walking one mile, walking two. Roman soldiers abuse their lawful right to force civilians to walk their equipment one mile to show hierarchy and rule. We see this when Simon from Cyrene was forced by Roman authorities to carry Jesus' cross. However, the, the law only allowed enforcement for a single mile. Tolerance would be to accept that mile. On the other hand, Creative resistance is to carry, look, carry on, putting the soldier as liable for punishment, not that of the, of the oppressed themselves. 
So Jesus tells through the Sermon on the Mount, through this example, of a different response to violence. No, this is my notes at this point. <laughs> Be with me there. As fighting back, as fighting back would bring more suffering, as tolerance would just accept the injustice and the oppression. But that creative response, that creative resistance, may just shift the power whilst advocating for non-violence and advocating for pacifism. In the small way exposing the hierarchies and the powers and principalities of work. So in this creative measure, in this creative response, the Anabaptists followed that unorthodox path. Now the story of Mino Simmons, Simons is variable here. The name, the first name rings a bell, he's the, start, he's the person that started the Mennonite movement, he's the inspiration for that in the States. But, we come back to the Anabaptist history, he was a Roman Catholic priest, who considered the Bible authoritative, he was diligent in his teaching, but he also had comfort, distraction, he was addicted to drinking and gambling, and he spoke this truth at the pulpit, but didn't necessarily speak it in God's love. Through his priesthood, he would encounter difficulty in a few moments to be awakened by the doctrine he taught and whether it was valid. Firstly, it was his posture to infant baptism and national allegiance. And then the church sought to persecute the Anabaptists. They escaped, they still got killed, and in the process, Mino's brother died, died as a result of the conflict. In light of that event, Mino was taken aback by the Anabaptists, who he considered, quote, jealous, zealous children, although in error, willingly gave their lives and their estates for their doctrine and faith. Out of all this, in forgiveness, he turned away from the pulpit of his Roman Catholic priesthood. Instead, he began writing, expressing his concerns, and in the midst of this, he saw the small group of radicalised Anabaptists, not the majority, but a very small group, who were passionate about being rebellious, but didn't have full knowledge of Jesus' teaching. They deviated from this non-violent path to oppress the city of Munster, and essentially took it over for 18 months. In the group's desire to be radical, they turned their ways to the empire, they turned their ways to the ping-pong violence. And with ping-pong violence, the Protestants and the Catholics, though differing in their doctrine, came together and found all the more reason to go and persecute the Anabaptists. In the midst of this, Mino kept pondering the scriptures. And he kept writing. He saw the cross and sought to forbid his followers from fighting with physical weaponry. He believed the Christian's duty was to suffer, not fight. He quoted, If the head had to suffer such torture, anguish, misery and pain, how shall his servants, children and members expect peace and freedom as to their flesh? He may not have con contributed or participated in the resistance, but his contemplation and his writing lead to this response where hundreds of thousands would call themselves Mennonites, around the globe and particularly in the States, daily pursuing a walk that involved non-violence. That being said, Mino did issue a warning. 
The pursuit of nonviolence redefines what the power of the oppressor is. And it also redefines what victory looks like. If I return back to Matthew and those three examples, the slapping, the clothing, and the walking, the oppressor in each, the, the in each scenario appear to give the oppressor more power, the ability to afflict more pain, instilling a belief that they had won, not the, not the oppressed at all. The left cheek could have been slapped, the coat could have been stolen, the equipment could have just been taken the second mile. However, the Anabaptists believe that victory set with the resistance's exposure of power that would be revealed at a future time. They followed Jesus' perception that there was a cost to be bared. Peter would testify to this. Oh, no, am I, I'm too far. Oh, I missed the sign. Okay, never mind. Um, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, Peter referenced that, that Jesus did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left the case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He let God define, he and the Anabaptists let God define what victory was beyond what their lifespans could see. So with that little background of Anabaptist pacifism and Anabaptist nonviolence, I want to return to Charlottesville for, for a bit. Because the Anabaptist posture can be reflected there and then can be reflected back home. See, for some of us, we have an intrinsic connection to the protest, either by ancestry, either by sheer outrage, maybe this is a topic for next week at Soiree perhaps, or by the broader issues at hand. And for others of us, you're probably wondering why I'm dedicating my talk around this topic that seems disconnected from the world we live in, in Aotearoa, in the here and now. A journalist friend of mine tweeted an observation last week, someone I respect quite dearly, that although, although we are halfway across the world, the news of Charlottesville is not some well-produced cable reality TV show from the States whose stories we can disconnect ourselves from. I don't think we can but naively believe that intolerance of race, gender, and other forms of equality just does not exist here. Division, violence, oppression, and inequality just speak a different tune. In my metaphor, they are spoken like the subtle taste of our bluff oyster in comparison to the over-the-top Texan barbecue at some Charlottesville restaurant. Now, that Charlottesville restaurant, mind you, has two very different stances, divided stances, that I believe parallel some of the challenges that we are going to have if we want to live this reconciliation and pacifist mindset out. And it starts with this image here. Image in Boston, shortly after the Charlottesville protests. Under the rotunda, we have the Unite the Right protest. And surrounding them, thousands of counter-protesters. So in the middle we have the white supremacists, the, 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 the alt-right, however you want to call them. See, their, their stance is that the other's pursuit of equality and civil rights has left them behind. They can no longer tolerate the other's removal of their employment, their lifestyle, and their identity. And the removal of that confederate flag and those confederate statues 
remove the history they hold dearly, the stories that they hold of heroes who have given them the platform to succeed. They believe that they are entitled as the special ones in their nation state, with the right to exercise their freedom, including the qualities of redemptive violence, to continue the superiority that they hold from nostalgia into the future. Now, much like these photos and other protests have shown, they have less numbers, but this only emphasises their position that they perceivably hold as the outsider. Surrounding them, we have the thousands of counter-protesters. Their stance is that they can no longer tolerate the other's projection of a sanitised history that ignores their ancestors' death, enslavement and terror caused by violence or effectively the empire of the day. They protest to show that power is not strictly for the privileged based on whatever parameters they want to use. History, skin colour, gender, etc. They protest to imagine something new that empowers all people with equal opportunity to succeed. Although some radicals in their midst seek to redeem by violence, the majority follow the path crafted by Martin Luther King for a non-violent political revolution. Perhaps others would think about Mandela, others think about Tiananmen Square, others, if they even knew about it, may even think, may even have heard of Parihaka as, as an influencer somewhere. People take it <laughs> <laughs> the president may not side with, the, with this group on the outside, but they know, like this photo here, that they exceed the other side by ratios of 20, 50, even 100 to 1, or even higher than that. What's interesting, though, is that both sides desire a United States. They desire peace. They're devoted in their commitment to what peace to them looks like. They refuse to be harassed for, their, for who they are and refuse to surrender to the other side's perspective of their prior history, of their prior culture, their future outlook and what that exactly counts as truth or what exactly counts as truth. The challenge is that I know which way I side with and my perspective is I probably hold the view that the Anabaptists and Jesus' teaching would, would hopefully go the same way. But with the temptation to instill right and wrong, as we talked about last week when we were talking about the house that we're trying to build, the temptation for right and wrong, us and them and this other that's an object rather than people with perspectives and histories. How do we reconcile the growing divide? Are we listening to those who are not our own? How do we oppose those who reject Jesus' way of peace, including those who profess Jesus' name, without using violence, without taking revenge, or without merely surrendering to their ways as truth? And it's from these questions, I fly back home, into our time and space. See, in less than a month, or some may vote early perhaps, our country's going to the polls. And we're going to decide as a nation what leaders, what parties, will govern our country for the next three years. And I know personally I have certain views of policy or poverty of how New Zealand would, 
would be, be served and be great. I also have views on issues relating to Matilia Ture's benefit fraud. Vaccines, gay marriage, Tridia Waitangi, refugee count, homelessness, educational standards, a whole number of issues that surround our nation state. I know these views will be different from others in this room, across social media, water coolers, if we still have water coolers, ethnicities, and this nation. And I could relent to their opinion as truth. I could choose to respond with anger at their difference. But in the midst of all this, I pause and have two overarching questions that I've asked along the way. Firstly, is my perception biased? Does my view affirm my own gain? Or does it affirm God's call for reconciliation and peacemaking? Does it, does it benefit me or does it benefit beyond me, my community, my nation? Secondly, the question I've been overarching with is, how do I join into conversations with differing peoples, with differing opinions? How can I compel others into a different perspective without division, violence, or oppression? These questions I don't have answers for. I'm still pulling on them. And I'm still wrestling with what that looks like in the everyday, in the mundane, in the nine to five, in the after five. The Anabaptists walked a path that involved this tension of peacemaking, advocating for the outsider against the injustice and oppression faced by again, physical, structural, or even subtle violence. They saw the cost of taking revenge, so they followed Jesus' pacifist, non-violent example, finding innovative, creative responses to resist. Their resistance was met by the swords of their oppressors, their inability of the oppressors' side point of view to listen to the views of God, or their views of God in his scriptures. There was tension in that way of being too. Yet the teachings of Jesus affirmed that that victory would come at a later time for a greater cause. So they kept on resisting and responding, and we have their stories to tell today. So what can we learn from their perspective of pacifism? What needs to be reconciled in our, in our lives, in our world? How do we advocate for the shalom that God talks about, that he calls for all people, not just our own? How do we advocate for non-violence without accepting others' desire to perpetuate violence or the ping-pong redemptive violence? And how can we restore that within our context, our Kiwi ingenuity? The number eight wire has to be helpful here somewhere. I've just thrown a whole bunch of questions. I don't have answers and I'm sorry about that. Um, I just hope that I've stoked something. I know that we'll have some insights as a community. So I have a couple of questions, but that being said, if this is stoked through your feelings and reactions, don't look at these, just go with what you've got. In the event it hasn't, then we'll start there and we'll see what comes up. But that's what I've got, so thanks everybody. Threes? Threes?